Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. Uh, my name is Marvin Goldfried, together with my usual esteemed colleague. Uh, Alan Francis. Hello, Marvin. Hello, Louis. How are you? And we have another esteemed colleague, a visitor, Louis Castanier. First time we've ever had a visitor, so we don't know how it's going to work. But then again, we don't know how any of our podcasts work. Uh, and Louis is a uh, liberal arts professor at Penn State which is better than the ordinary full professor. Uh, Louis and I know each other for close to 40 years. Um, he trained at Stony Brook. We are colleagues, very close friends. And before we begin, I have to just let everybody know that Louis did something that changed my life. I don't know if you can guess what it is, Louis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It yeah, was he... What's that? Fly fishing. Like yes, you got it. Very good guess. Well, when you know somebody all these years, it's more than a guess. Yes, he introduced me to fly fishing, which has been magnificent. And I'm not going to get into this, but those people who are watching or listening who are fly fishers will know exactly what I mean. But that's not why we invited Louis. We invited Louis because he is has been doing some very fascinating work. He has been uh, engineering and guiding therapy research done for clinicians by clinicians. In other words, this is a research network of clinicians who have agreed to take out time from their clinical work and do research. It sounds like it's impossible, but it has been happening. So Louis is going to tell us a bit about it. Uh, why don't we start? How did you get interested in this, Louis? Well, I guess the, there was something very pragmatic when I arrived at Penn State right after my postdoc, my first job. Uh, Tom Borkovec, who was a faculty member, and, and Steve Ragusia, who was a clinician, uh, Penn State is in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, so it's a small community of researchers and clinicians. And Borkovec and Regusia had been arguing for years and years uh, in private context and in some kind of ground rounds about the validity, the clinical validity and helpfulness of research. And Borkovec was making the argument that, well, if, if research, if 
practice is not guided by research, um, there's going to be major uh, limitations. It should, uh, research should guide, at least in part, research, uh, clinical work. And Raguja had the complete, uh, the full-time clinicians, a complete different view. It was saying that um, research has no impact whatsoever uh, on clinical work. So uh, to their merit, they basically kind of says, well, we, we should stop talking about this and try to see if we can create research as part of the clinical routine. And if we could find a way of seeing if the clinicians would be engaged and if they would be willing and able to conduct some meaningful research. So there was the first um, study that was born of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association uh, PRN. Or Let me interrupt you a second. Let me just get clear. The, the dialogue be between uh, Borkovic and his clinical colleague, Borkovic said that uh, re research should guide yeah. clinical work, but his colleague said, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It and doesn't. he felt like, uh, Raguzia felt that um, that research has nothing to say about it, that uh, he had never seen uh -huh. a study that actually was talking with him, uh, to him. Um, you know, these are my words, of course, but he, he felt like that research was absolutely irrelevant and that the clinical reality would be too complex to be captured by uh, research design. That was his perspective about it. And so they basically so said, said, okay, let's said, try to see. He said that research couldn't capture. I mean, you know, these are my words, but that's yeah. what I retained from okay. their argument, okay. right? That it was, you know, that the that the clinical reality was too complex right. to be able to be captured by research or that any research findings would not be okay. capturing and reflecting the complexity. So from that, basically, that was that was impressive. They actually said, well, let's try to see to work together. They brought uh, a number of clinicians from all over Pennsylvania. And they launched a study. And I, I happened to be during, that was my first year there. Um, a couple of, uh, uh, Borkovic also um, was thinking like, you know, and all, all the um, uh, clinical program in the Department of Psychology, there's a clinic. And he felt that, you know, maybe we should do research, you know, standardize the clinic there, but more importantly, is created a network of training clinics uh, in the Department of Psychology so that we can address one of the most difficult aspects of research that the two of you know, which is a uh, large sample of both clients and, and therapists. So he had this idea, which uh, I thought that that was brilliant. And, and then there was another uh, luminary. There was a uh, uh, ben Locke, who was a clinician at Penn State in the Counseling Psychological Services. And he he had this dream. Uh, he felt like uh, there was a very high, a lot of increase of psychopathology and distress in college students, very limited resources, that people in the field was were poo-pooing what was taking place in counseling center, right? That uh, we were treating Yavis, you know, the young, attractive, verbal, successful, intelligent people. 
you know, university college students don't really count. And we can't really lobbying to our administrator why it's important to have staff. We, we don't know what are the needs of the clients. We don't know what are the needs of the therapist. And he invited uh, Jeff Ayes, who was uh, with a colleague, great friend, um, to breakfast and, and me and says, I got, I, I got some data. And I, I asked people on campus in the statistical program to do the analyses, uh, and then they dropped the ball. And I don't know what to do. I have a presentation in two weeks. And uh, Jeff and I look at each other and just then look back and say, have you ever heard about the concept of a graduate student? And so let, we let, let started me... to kind of do a massive, massive research for addressing the needs of the clinicians. Right. So this whet your appetite, got you interested. Can we? Can you bring us a little bit fast forward a bit as to what your experiences were? I mean, the history is fascinating, and we could probably go on for a long time about the history. But the reason you're here is is uh, to give your personal account. Um, because I know you're motivated to close this gap, and you were, quote, in the trenches. Yeah. So I've been doing that for a long time, right? And, and in three different contexts. So there's a practice research network in private practice with private practitioner with the PPA, PRN. There's a private, there is a practice research network in the counseling centers. Now we have 700 counseling centers, 700 counseling centers who are using the same instruments and who are sending the data uh, collected by clinicians and clients to Penn State. And then we have, if we have 100,000 new clients per year. I keep reminding my graduate students that my dissertation, I had 30 clients. <laughs> um, and then there's a practice research network in our clinic. So with a colleague, Aaron Pincus and I transform our training clinic into a practice research network where the students simultaneously do clinical work and research. But, you know, of course, these were interesting idea, but one of the thing, I think, I think one of the things that uh, really allow me to continue is that there are these these moments of convergence that really gets me going. Um, these moments where you just realize that even though we have very different expertise, clinicians and researchers, very different job, very different needs, there are times when there are incredible amount of convergence of this is what we should be studying, or, or even better, this is what we want to study, whether or not we should. Could you give us an example? Yeah. So we had completed this first study by Borkovic and uh, Intermedia, uh, Borkovic and Ragusia, at, 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 uh, and there was another person, Ruben Intermedia, also involved in that study. But they, they, they had done that study the large study across Pennsylvania. But we felt that the study, which was essentially, was one of the first study of collecting routine outcome measurements. 
you know, what Lambert, you know, really kind of pushed uh, later. So we had 50 clients across United, across Pennsylvania who used the same outcome instruments. And just to see, can we actually, as a group, see if our client changed and uh, using the same instruments across different private practice. At the end of, the, of that, um, a, a, a small group of people at, around Penn State felt that this was in, that this was good, but that was not really interesting. They they knew that psychotherapy works. The the question that was being asked was, does psychotherapy work? Works, but and they kind answer, of like it, it was it was kind of like duh, yeah. right? For the clinicians, they know that, but it yeah. was more for the rest of the world. And and Alan, you you your comment on uh, clinical trials in the past has been. You know, whatever you say the limitation are uh, is of, of a clinical trial, at least it demonstrates that therapy works. And that's not at least. I mean, that's tremendously important because... And it was tremendously important to actually figure out that, yes, not only in effectiveness trial, but in actual clinical routine where the therapists are working, not implementing any treatment protocol, their day-to-day practice, yes, clients do change. So that was important. But for clinicians, that was not, and the researcher, that was not really exciting. So, so how, were, why in the world did they do this? They, they were they were addressing a research question that is really not a clinical question. No, they're they were. Wait, 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 they're taking time out of their practice. How, did, how do you get them to do it? It seems like it's impossible, but it's not impossible because you've done it. So is it, is it your smile? Is it your charm? Is you bribe them with anything? I bribe them with wine, that's for sure. But the, let me ah. just contextualize it. Let me just contextualize. So that was the first study, right? Yeah. Does it, does it work? But at the end of that first study, when we actually show, yes, people are changing, some researchers and some clinicians at Penn State, around Penn State said, yeah, but you know what? This research design was just too simplistic. And it, it was, that's the only thing we could do with a really large group living in different places. That was before Zoom, of course. And so what we decided to do is we decided there were about 15 of us, clinicians and two researchers. And for a year, we decided let's, let's sit down and meet regularly. And when we started that meeting, I remember, I think I was the chair of that meeting, and I said to uh, people, uh, what, what would you like to study? There was a silence of about five seconds. And then there's a therapist who said, you know, at every session, at the end of every session, I'm always asking myself one question, which is, did the client find that that session was helpful or not? Mm-hmm. And there's a second therapist who says, me too, but I'm also kind of interested in what did they find helpful? And there's another therapist say, you know what, I, I, that's, I find that really interesting. But what I find also interesting is, was there something that actually happened during the sessions that was hindering, that was uh, interfering. I'm always interested by this. So I had to bite my tongue, and Marvin knows that I like to talk a lot, because 
Marv also know that my real interest at heart is the process of change. I had to wait for an hour to say to this lovely group of clinicians, two, good, two news. One, this is also what I do. And two, there are instruments that are measuring this. And then what we did for a year, we planned a study, which involved randomizations, by the way. We did a randomized clinical trial in our private practice with all of the clients that came as part of our practice for 18 months. So, um, the, you know, this was something that the clinicians wanted to know. And as a group of researchers and clinicians, we said to ourselves, let's try to figure it out. And it was absolutely one of the best experience of my, my professional uh, life. So let me give you a metaphor if you are open to cultural metaphors. Sure. So as you know, French Canadians, we are good at very few things, but there's one thing we're good at, which is hockey. And the best ever season of hockey is 1976-1977, where the Montreal Canadiens, the Habs, lost only eight games. And one day they asked... Tom Beliveau. No, that was post Beliveau. <laughs> Beliveau retired in 71. So they asked the, their greatest player, which was Guy Lafleur, and they asked him, how do you explain this? And he said... During 76 and 77s, we, the hockey players of the team, did not walk to the practice at the forum. We ran to the practice. And there were days where I actually ran to those meetings. I got on my car speed because I was going to sit down with individual, again, I'm repeating myself, that we're doing what I'm interested in doing from a different expertise, different goals, different motivations, but there were something that we were all interested in. And then we could find a way of just saying, okay, but let's try to measure this and let's have fun. And that's so that's one of the reasons. So there, is, there, is, there are those moments of convergence that are so exciting. Yeah. So that's interesting. You know what I'm hearing? I am hearing that they brought up not research questions, but clinical questions. And it's an interesting distinction because the researcher studies research questions, not necessarily clinical questions. And the research questions that they study often are determined by somebody else like the National Institute of Mental Health or some other kind of funding group. And they say, here's the questions I want you to study. But these were the questions by the clinicians. Mm -hmm. And that brought them to the meetings and, and maybe some of the wine also. Well, what were the answers? So, by the way, just, just to back up a little bit, I use a term uh, those questions, the, the, the questions to be addressed if we really want to. Uh, fostered the clinicians in the design and implementation of the study. They have to 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 be what I call clinically syntonic. You know, we have ego syntonic, so it has to be clinically syntonic, which means that 
the research needs to confound the research task, whatever the, the researcher decide to do. In this case, researchers are the, res the, 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 faculty, the, the, the faculty member and the, and the clinicians. Ha it, that the task is simultaneously, at, at the same time, addressing both empirical and clinical questions. So at, at ultimately, research to be really relevant is when the clinician is actually conducting the, the task. If you were to ask them right now, the data that you're collecting right now, are you collecting it for your research interests or your clinical job? And if the answer is, I don't know, because it's both, you're in. So what was the answer? Is really, really kind of interesting. So what we did again, we had more than 150 patients because we 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 had again, it's kind of like we had we were 13 clinicians and all uh, more or less. And for all of the new clients that were coming in, private clients, we would be asking, if it was appropriate, of course, clinically, do you want to participate in this study? And the study was clients and therapists, I can go into more details about the design, but at the end of every session, we'd fill out an index card. Was there something helpful that happened today? If yes, uh, rate it from zero to four. And then if yes, write what actually did happen there. And then you turn the card. Did something hindering happen today? If yes, how hindering from zero to four, and then describe it. And then what we did is we collected this data and then we asked graduate students to code it. You know, I, I trained them to code it. And then the most frequent helpful event for both therapists and clients were the events where the clients increased their awareness of their experience, not an insight not a behavioral change. And by the way, the therapists were from different theoretical orientation. Is the clients being able to symbolize and just becoming more conscious of, ah, I realized, for example, during that sessions that I had those feelings. I became more clear to me or I, I helped the client became more clear about their views on this and this was raising awareness. That was the most helpful one, which was very humbling because it was not like a corrective experience or behavioral change or or a interpretations. No, no, it was just just becoming a little bit more aware, seeing and saying something. But Louis, you said not insight, but isn't that insight? No, we had insight. We had, you know, we operationally defined it. We had that instrument. We had that instrument that would make a difference between awareness and insight. The insight would be, uh, aha, uh, I was not, now I have a better understanding of the situation. Insight implies a new understanding. Uh, and you, as you wrote, Marvin, and, and acquisitions of a new perspective of self. This was not a new perspective of self. It was just kind of like, oh, I'm aware that I eat a lot, let's say. 
That's not understanding why you eat a lot. Okay, so it's a, it's more of a simple self-observation. Absolutely. That's what it was. Yeah, and yeah. that so that's very humbling that this is what the clients and the therapists felt that these were the most helpful moment for people. Yes. Well, you know, Wilhelm Reich said that in the 1930s. He said simply pointing out something to the patient in the session so that they become aware of it produces change, temporary okay. change, even though theoretically it didn't seem to fit his theoretical model. Well, I also think that's the one, one of the power of Rogers. Uh, some of his interventions, there's many interventions, but one of his interventions was aim at the person clarifying their experience, symbolizing their experience, right? And then from there, I think people are able to move. Which were the things that hindered the most? What were some of the most, you know, in terms of the scale, the most helpful and, and in terms of how helpfulness they were? So the result that I presented to you was how frequent it was. But we also asked them, you know, you know, there's some event that you scored really high on helpfulness and very high on hindering. And for both cases, it was the therapeutic relationship. The frequency was not high, but the most hindering event and the most painful event from both the therapist and the clients were something really difficult that took place in the relationship. The therapist, for example, would say, oh, I, I really, really missed the boat. Uh, I really failed to be empathic. The client would say, the therapist yelled at me today. Uh, and these were the most hindering parts. So uh, and it reminded me, you know, of Bill's Henry research that toxic events in the therapeutic relationship do not happen frequently. But when they do, though, they have, unfortunately, uh, really high negative impact. And that was confirming this, that, yep, what was the, the most helpful thing in terms of the intensity, not only frequency, was something the client saying, like, I really felt understood. I really felt understood. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, Louis, let me pick up on this. So the awareness was important, but also the fact that it occurred in the context of the therapy was that it communicated that the therapist understood and got the patient. So it's not just awareness from reading a book or self-writing, it's a shared awareness, Yes, which I think is very, very interesting. But, but here's a question. This is a difficult question, really. To what extent do researchers accept this as research findings? And I'm asking it of you, Louis, because our watchers and listeners may not know, Louis has been, he's been president of the Society for Psychotherapy Research. He's gotten several awards for his research. He was just nominated by the society for a new award of making the most contribution to the society. So he's a respected person. What do they think of the research? We need to make a difference here between researchers and the others. Uh, other stakeholder in the field of mental health practice, which is the policymakers. 
I think the researchers are very, most of the researchers that I know, of course, I'm swimming into one community, right? I'm swimming into the community of psychotherapy research, Society for Psychotherapy Research. I'm yeah. also swimming in the community of the Division 29 of APA, of Clinic of Psychotherapy and CEPI. So it is a, these are not necessarily th- uh, organizations that are known uh, to really ab- abide by randomized clinical trial. These are, these are society by definition that just say, okay, different type of research are really relevant. So I think that it would then, I would say that the world that I'm swimming in, researchers are saying, yeah, this is fantastic. This is great. Uh, and it's actually fantastic when you can actually do a internally valid and externally valid uh, research. The problem, I think, is that uh, we have guidelines, right, about what is being recognized. Uh, so an APA has a guidelines about PTSD. APA has a guidelines about treatment for depression. And there is a hierarchy of what is retained as being the type of research that will actually guide the policy guideline in terms of how we should train therapists, what we should re- uh, reimburse. And the policymaker are, for all sorts of reasons, still believe that the gold standard, if not the only scan- standard, are the randomized clinical trial. And so practice-oriented research, um, and I think in some ways that's, uh, you know, you have a situation very specific in the UK where, you know, the government is paying for the, the treatment and that for a very, very long time, you know, the major criticism of those policy guidelines is that uh, it's randomized trial and very specific randomized clinical trial. So I think that the problem is not the researchers and the problem is not the clinicians. The problem is, uh, add the policymaker is just to say, yeah. I think that to establish the empirical foundations of psychotherapy, we should recognize different type of research. I think that's a very astute uh, and, and also depressing observation. Yes, um, it just it, it highlights the the, um, the systemic roots that unfortunately perpetuate the gap between research and practice. But I think your work with clinicians makes it so very clear that re- that clinicians want empirical answers to the questions that help them do the therapy. It's just that these questions may not be the kind of questions that policy or other people want to make and want to, want to, want to study. Yeah, you know, I, you know that. I refer to, you know, if we continue to go this way, uh, to only consider uh, what's uh, the empirical foundation is the random mosque trial. Are we going to get ourselves into what I call empirical imperialism? Yes. Empirical imperialism is when there are people like me who spend, you know, maybe see one or two patients um, and has the audacity of saying to people who see 20 patients a year, this is what you should study or this is what you should read and this is how you should be doing it. There's nothing wrong about doing research and control settings that are derived by the interest of the researchers. There's something wrong that this is the only thing that is guiding 
uh, this is what we're going to say, yeah. people, by the way, this is, you know, this is how you should be. This is the research that should guide your clinical work. That's yeah. that's the part that is wrong. Right. Listen, we're coming to the end of this, this podcast, which I find fascinating. And I'm really delighted that you agreed to come. And um, just to cap it off, um, Louis, breakthroughs in science came from people who had audacity. Please continue to be audacious. <laughs> and thank you for the visit. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. Love you. Stay safe. Bye-bye. You too.